He closed his eyes and lifted his face toward the warm sun, allowing the welcomed ocean breeze to rustle his hair. And as he began his afternoon prayer, after all, it was about 12 noon, he breathed in and he could nearly taste the salty air being whisked off the waves of the Mediterranean Sea. The rooftop of this seaside home had become his favorite place to pray. This home of a rather hospitable leather maker in the port city of Joppa had become a resting place for weeks during his time of ministry in the region. And as he began to engage with God and do his prayer ritual, that inevitable distracting phenomenon began to happen. That all too familiar feeling that even the most spiritual among us experience, the stomach growl. And he began thinking about what sort of fish, now fish, of course, not shellfish, the cooks would be preparing that day in the kitchen for lunch. Now, if getting hungry was typical, what happened next was nothing but. At just that moment, something unusual happened. Our character, we'll call him Peter, gets drawn into a trance of sorts, and he proceeds to see a vision. In that vision, the sky opens up, and and down comes this white sheet, almost like a projector screen being unrolled from a heavenly home. And it gets weirder because the next thing he sees are are all kinds of birds and and animals and reptiles on this sheet screen. Antelopes and tortoises and parrots and pigs and iguanas, every kind of animal you could think of. And then comes a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This voice seemingly from above says. Now Peter retorts back without hesitation, perhaps assuming he's being tested. And he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice says again, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Once again, Peter, being the good Torah observant Jew that he is, seeing that there were pigs and shellfish and creeping things in the sheet, says, now now you're not going to trick me. I said, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. What God has made clean, do not call common, the voice says. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Color began to fill Peter's face as a familiar feeling of frustration sets in. He remembers a time some years ago when he had a similar back and forth exchange with someone else. That conversation by the sea over a meal of char-grilled fish when his rabbi asked him if he loved him. Now Peter responds to the divine voice one more time and says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. To which he's met with the persistent response, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now as Peter starts to come out of this trance-like state, his head is spinning. He's trying to make sense of what this encounter means. And at just that time, He hears unknown voices from down below. They're voices of men arriving at the gate. And he hears knocking. We're here to see a man named Peter. Is he staying here? They ask the owner of the home, the leather maker, Simon. 
And as they talk to Simon, the Spirit of God speaks to Peter and tells him exactly what's happening. There are three men downstairs. They're here for you. Forget about lunch. Get up and go see them and accompany them without hesitation and without question, for I am the one who sent them. So Peter, he, he gets up and he goes down to see them in. I'm Peter, he says. I'm the guy you're looking for. The Spirit of God just spoke to me. Relief came over the faces of the men. They'd been preparing themselves throughout their journey for what this moment would be like. How were they supposed to explain the fact that their master, Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, had had a vision from God four days ago, and in this vision, an angel had told him to go to this guy named Simon, who's also called Peter, who was staying with another Simon, who's a tanner at a house by the sea. Little did they know, while they were traveling and searching for the home, after all, the angel didn't bother to give them an address, Peter also was having a vision of his own. Surely, they think, God is up to something. The next day, the men and Peter, as well as a few of Peter's friends, sat out on the 30-mile journey from Joppa to another coastal city just, called, just north called Caesarea. And the anticipation and the nerves began to stir inside Peter's chest the appetite he had yesterday while praying on the roof is suddenly completely gone. He couldn't think about eating right now. After all, what was God leading him into? Who, who is this Cornelius? Why was he going to see him? A centurion, a, a Gentile, after all. And what was with that vision with the sheet and the animals? Maybe I didn't drink enough water yesterday, he thinks. Maybe that wasn't really God who was talking. Would God really say, kill and eat? Would he really go against Jewish law? Finally, they arrive. As soon as Peter steps through his front door, Cornelius meets him there and falls down at his feet. It reminds Peter of the way so many desperate and sincere people had thrown themselves at his rabbi's feet back when Peter was following him for those years before he was killed. Peter quickly grabs Cornelius and lifts him up and says, Stand up. I'm a man just like you. They began to talk, and Peter could tell rather quickly by his sincerity that Cornelius was a man who feared God. Now, as they were talking, Cornelius guided Peter into the living room. It was then that Peter noticed they were not the only ones there. In fact, there was not a clear space on the floor, not an open chair in the room. Cornelius' mother and, and brother and aunt and uncle and cousins and neighbors and friends, they had all come and were crowded in the house. All of them gathered to see what was going to unfold if this Simon called Peter actually showed up. Peter uh, looked around the room and uh, noticed there was not one Jewish person there. Besides him and his friends, of course, they were all Gentile. But something was starting to click for Peter. The same God that had given him his rooftop vision had given Cornelius his vision. And that rooftop voice played in his head again, what God has made clean, do not call common. And there was a murmur in the crowded room. What, what, what would he say, they wondered. Peter turned to address the room full of Gentiles, and he said this. 
you all know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with or visit anyone non-Jewish. There was a tangible tension in the room. Was Peter indicting them for bringing him here? Was, was he upset at them for forcing him to break his own law? What did Peter think of them? Were they foreigners or outsiders or unclean? Were they the other? But Peter continued. He said, but, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when your men came to get me yesterday, I came without objection. The, the tension began to release in the room. Then Peter said, so I know what God spoke to me, but, but honestly, I'm still not clear on, on why I'm here. Could someone tell me, why did you send me? Cornelius spoke up, explaining the encounter he had. Four days ago, around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I was praying, and this bright figure, like an angel, stood before me and told me to send for a man in Joppa named Peter. And now, here you are. And so, we're here to hear what you have to say. Peter took a deep breath. He had preached the good news about Jesus many times before. In fact, he preached one of the most famous sermons ever preached on the day of Pentecost when about 120 people gathered and the Spirit poured out on them. And that gathering had people of many skin tones and languages. But they had all had one thing in common. They were all Jewish. He had never been in a room full of Gentiles before. What was he supposed to say to them? The white sheet appeared in his mind again. He opened his mouth and he began to give a sermon he had never given before. He told them about how God shows no partiality and about how anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. He began to tell them about the man they'd heard stories about, this Jesus of Nazareth, his rabbi who preached peace and healed the oppressed and was executed but then raised and then appeared to his followers. And he told them how this Jesus had commanded him and the others to preach that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, is made clean through his name. Now before Peter could even finish his homily, the presence of God began to tangibly fill the room. The warmth and the weight that Peter had experienced back in the upper room was playing out in this very room this Gentile house. And the Holy Spirit came upon everyone in the room. And Peter's friends who had come with him, who were circumcised Jews just like Peter, couldn't believe what they were hearing, what they were witnessing. Because by this point, they were even hearing these men and women speaking in tongues and praising God. They turned and looked at Peter with wide eyes, waiting for what Peter was going to say. And Peter looked at them and said, who can keep these people from being baptized? Look, they received the Holy Spirit just like we have. Then Peter, emboldened by this movement of God, commanded the people to be baptized in the name of this Jesus. And then for several days, he stayed there with Cornelius and this newly established in Christ community of Gentiles talking about the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and sharing meals together. Would you pray with me? Lord, when I think about the great lengths that you've gone, that we would be sitting in this room today. 
I'm just in awe of you. God, I thank you that uh, even centuries ago, you had uh, made it so that, that your ultimate dream could be fulfilled, that, that you um, would, would be in relationship with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue all over the earth. God, we thank you for uh, your gospel. I pray today that you would uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts as we open your word together. Thank you for this, this family and this church, uh, God, that you would move in, in each of us today. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How you guys feeling? Thanks for going on that, uh, that journey with me. <laughs> yeah, amen. Clap it up. I had some help from the tech team, so thank you guys. That, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, give it up for the tech team. Jocelyn, Dantes, the whole crew up there. So, um, so that was a lot of fun, and I am, I am excited to be here. My name's Megan. And can I just say... I, I'm excited that um, it's, it's scarf season. <laughs> like, like I, I see some scarves in the room. I'm wearing my scarf today. Like, I'm really a summer person. I mean, those of you that I shook hands with during the what up do moment, you're like, your hand is so cold. I'm like, yeah, I, I live for the summer. But really, the, the thing I do like about the fall is I can rock the scarves. You know, it's like you can accessorize a little more in the fall. How many people have already been out to a cider mill? Okay, all right, all right, all right. A few of y'all probably going today. We might see you out there one. But, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to be here. And this fall season, uh, we're in a series on the book of Galatians. And, and the book of Galatians is a letter uh, written by Paul somewhere around A.D. 50, give or take a few years. And it's written to Christians around the region that's called Galatia. And uh, we're going to be in, in Galatians chapter 2 today, verses 11 through 14, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And, and as you're doing that, just to set the context, set the scene a little bit, uh, in the book of Galatians, we find ourselves really in the, in the midst of a both particular, uh, peculiar, and critical moment in the life of the early church, right? On the one hand, the gospel's been spreading, Right? The gospel, when we say the gospel, you'll hear me say this a lot today. This is the message of salvation for all people through Jesus, okay, just to be clear. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But the gospel that's not just to Jews, right, but it's also to Gentiles, anyone that's non-Jewish. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the spirit being poured out on all flesh, right? God's plan that he had all along, that every culture, every language, every nation would be brought into communion with God through Jesus and would be brought into God's family. And, and God's working through people like Peter and like Paul, these, these church leaders, and they're having these radical experiences. We just heard about one, right? It was crazy, the sheets and all this. He's having, they're having these experiences where God is, is shifting their paradigm, so to speak, re revealing the truth of this good news to all people. But while the gospel's moving uh, and it's taking root and it's expanding, unfortunately, the purity of this message seems to keep getting twisted and manipulated and added to. It's as though even the best of the church's leaders keep slipping in to a wrong paradigm, a different paradigm. To use Paul's language from chapter 1, a different gospel, the name of our series. Now, this different gospel is misleading people to believe that they need to become like Jews in order to be Christians. Right? If, if the question is, uh, to, to use the language we heard earlier, how, how am I to be made clean before God? The answer is, 
you need to get circumcised. You need to observe the law of Moses, right? Paul says, no, (laughs) Jesus is the one who makes us clean. Jew, Gentile, or otherwise. So this is the challenge, and it's part of uh, the occasion for which Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia to deal with this different gospel. And last week, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul recounts what seems to be kind of a breakthrough moment, right? He gathers uh, with, with some of the key leaders in Jerusalem, with Peter and James and John, and uh, with the exception of some what he calls false brothers who were kind of sneaking in, spy out, and try to stir up trouble. For the most part, this, this meeting seems to go pretty well, right? Titus is there with Paul. He's not Jewish. They don't make him get circumcised, right? And, and, and they talk, and it says they even extend to him the, the right hand of fellowship. They, they shake on it, right? You're we like the gospel you're preaching, Paul. You keep going to the Gentiles. We'll keep preaching the same gospel to the Jews, and we'll continue to remember the poor together. So it's kind of this polite sort of private meeting. Everything seems to be fine. But in today's text, the scene is not so polite. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not diplomatic. It's certainly not pretty, and it's certainly not private. So go to Galatians uh, chapter 2 with me. Verses 11 through 14. Let's read it. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The name of my uh, sermon today, my title is Get in Step. Get in Step. So verse 11 we see at the beginning of this section, he says, when Peter came, or sorry, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Cephas here is Peter. This is the Peter we just saw on the roof having his prayer time and, and going to Cornelius' home. Cephas, uh, or Peter, these kind of can be used interchangeably. Cephas is the Aramaic version of the name. Peter's the Greek version of the name. You might hear him called Simon Peter. And um, we know who Peter is, right? We, we've seen Peter. He's one of the disciples of Jesus. We've seen Peter at his, at his peak, and we've seen Peter in his not-so-good moments, right? We've seen Peter when he tries to step out and starts walking on the water, and then he starts to sink. We've seen Peter when he kind of rashly reacts in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've seen Peter when he denies Jesus. But we've also seen Peter as he, as he evolves and seems to mature, right, where he uh, explains and declares Christ is the Messiah. We've seen Peter as he preaches that powerful sermon at Pentecost. And we've seen Peter as a leader, a key leader in the Jerusalem church, We saw Peter in Acts 10, the vision we we shared from at the beginning. Uh, But Peter seems to be having one of his not-so-good moments here today. Paul says he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, for some of us, this idea of a a face-to-face confrontation kind of makes you squirm a little bit in in your seat, Right? Um, like, I don't really like where this is going. Now, uh, when we think about conflict, there's, there's generally two types of people, right? 
You've got the, the conflict averse or the conflict avoider, and then you've got the conflict instigator, right? The, those who, so there's those who kind of evade conflict at all costs. I'm kind of guilty of that at times. And then there's those that uh, kind of seek out conflict and, and look for any opportunity to have a little fun, right? Let's have a little conflict. Some of y'all know. Maybe there's a, there's a third type of person, though. Uh, perhaps uh, kind of a healthy example of conflict, right? Someone who's not necessarily looking for confrontation, but is willing to say the hard things when they need to be said. Now, part of me thinks maybe Paul was like the conflict instigator, you know, because he seems to be coming in really strong right here. But, but I'm not so sure because Peter is a pretty big deal, right? For him to come to Peter or Cephas and confront him to his face Paul better have a pretty good explanation for why he's confronting Peter. Let's look at verse 12. It says, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, of course we know this, right? We know Peter's been eating with the Gentiles. He had that crazy trance vision and, and that scene at Cornelius' house. I mean, if anyone should be eating with the Gentiles, it's Peter. So he's been eating with the Gentiles. It says, But when they came... He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, let's talk about these characters for a minute. We see certain men who came from James. Now, we don't know a ton of details here, or uh, it's not to say that whatever James had going on, that these men were representative of what James believed. But what we do know is that uh, if they came from James, they probably came from Jerusalem. So these are, these, are Jerusalem, or these are Jewish Christians, most likely. And, and remember, there was a distorted message kind of circulating at the time um, that, that said you had to become circumcised, you had to observe the law of Moses in order to be accepted into the family of God, in order to, to walk in the way of Jesus. But this was not Paul's message, right? And this, this is certainly not Peter's either. So the question is, what on earth happened Right? Peter's eating with the Gentiles, he's having fellowship, he's sharing meals, and then all of a sudden he's, he's separating himself. He's no longer sharing table fellowship with them. Did Peter forget? Like, did he have like a moment of amnesia and just totally forget all that God had showed him? I think we find our answer in the second part. It says, for certain, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Circumcision party. Like, how would you like that to be the name of your political party <laughs> or your national party, right? Like, I, I think, you know, last time I, I voted, like, I went Democrat. And, you know, I know my, my daddy does Republican. I mean, there's libertarians out there, Green Party. I think I'm going to go circumcision party, though, this time around. I mean, this is, but this is what they're known for. This is a circumcision party. Right? And uh, what's interesting, though, is this is not the first time we hear about the circumcision party. This is, this is this infamous group. In fact, in Acts 11, which comes right after that story we shared earlier, uh, after, after Peter has the vision and goes to Cornelius, the first part of Acts 11, it says that uh, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. They criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter's already had a run-in with these boys before, the circumcision party, who are not happy about the gospel going to Gentiles. Now, scholars and commentators are not exactly sure uh, how the men from James 
were connected with the circumcision party. If, if they were one and the same, or perhaps if the circumcision party was just influencing uh, the, the men come from James. I, I tend to think it's the latter. But what we do know is that their message was clear, right? You had to be circumcised to be allowed into the family of God. Sounds a little bit familiar, right? Think about our world today. Don't we hear these kind of messages all the time? If you just do blank, then you'll belong, right? If you vote this way, then, then you can come and be part of the group, right? If you think like us, then you can belong. If you adopt this way of speaking, sure, then you can belong. If you, if you dress this way, you can belong, right? If you take this view on a hot-button issue, then you can belong. Otherwise, you're not one of us. You had to be circumcised to belong. This was the message. And it says, Peter feared them. He feared the circumcision party. Phobeu in Greek, this is where we get our word phobia. Now, fear is, if you think about what psychologists tell us about fear, fear is sort of this primary emotion, right? It's this kind of primal instinct. It occurs at that primal level. Fear happens in our lives like automatically. They call it a fast emotion. It, it can take over at times. And we're not told exactly why this fear sets in in this moment for Peter. Some think uh, that the circumcision party may have had uh, like a reputation for being violent, had this propensity toward that. And so Peter was perhaps afraid of what they might do in this church at Antioch. It could be that Peter fears he may not be able to give a good enough rationale for his freedom, for why he's just over here eating with the Gentiles. And so he's afraid he's going to look foolish. It could be that he fears falling into disfavor among these conservatives in Jerusalem and lo losing his prestigious standing as a leader. Maybe a combination of all of the above. Let me ask you, as you think about your life today, what do you fear? What, what do you fear? Maybe who do you fear? Right now, we know not all fear is bad. Fear has its place and can serve us at times. But what, what I'm really trying to ask is who or what have you given power to to influence you to act contrary to what you believe? I'll say that one more time. Who or what have you given power to influence you to act contrary to what you believe? And Peter lets fear of this circumcision party completely overpower the gospel that he knows so well at this point, right? I, I personally don't think Peter actually changed his mind or his beliefs here in this moment. The vision in Joppa, right? The encounter at Cornelius' house. I mean, these were deeply marking moments. They were paradigm-shifting encounters. I mean, I think Peter still believed the gospel, that, that all people, both Jew and Gentile, are made clean or, or saved through Jesus alone, but it's in this moment of weakness that he gets out of step. He, he cuts off fellowship with the Gentiles, his brothers and sisters. Now, perhaps, you know, Peter's thinking in his mind, well, this wasn't, you know, such a big deal. 
It's just a seating arrangement change. <laughs> I'm just getting up. Yeah, I'm going over here. You know, I just don't want any trouble with these circumcision party people. So I'm just go over here and sit. You know, we can get back together later. No big deal. Let's just keep it kosher. You know, all this kind of stuff. So it, what's the big deal, right? I mean, is, the question is like, okay, is, is this a seating issue or maybe a food issue? Or is it a gospel issue? Now, some of y'all are going to laugh at this. So I, I've been at Detroit Church and enough years uh, now to know that many of us share a, a deep, deep love for food. We love some food. Come on. We love some food. Who loves food in here? I mean, come on. So we, we just love food. And it's funny how this, this plays out in our, in our community, right? We, we might be meeting, uh, let's say, for a vision night or uh, we're meeting for, on a Saturday for a planning meeting or something like that. But, but if this meeting just so happens to fall around lunchtime or dinner time, uh, these questions kind of start percolating around like, what's going on with the food? Right? The questions come up about the food. And, and so, okay, you know, Miss um, Rhonda, are we, are we, is it catered today? Like, where, where did you go? Where are you getting it catered from? And, and when is it, what time about you think it's going to arrive? Right? Oh, you, oh, it's a potluck. Okay, so who's bringing, like, who signed up for this? I'm just, just curious. Was I supposed to bring something? And there's these questions that come up. And it's funny because depending on, you know, the, the culture, the community, the kind of food preferences, uh, there's certain foods that, that are um, kind of more important than, than others. <laughs> In other words, there's certain foods you, you do not bring store-bought. And not just anybody should bring them. So... Now I, was in a, now, I was in a church for a while, and somebody who's shouting knows about this. And um, in this particular community, uh, we really liked to have Mexican food. We, we just, we just all, that's what we did. We always had Mexican food. And um, there was this particular, uh, what do I even call it? I mean, it wasn't the main dish. It, it wasn't even a dish. It was a condiment, actually. <laughs> but there was this particular condiment that you could not bring store-bought. And this condiment, this was a serious thing. There had to be a lot of it, and we had to know who was preparing it. And, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's guacamole. It was guacamole. I mean, and if you showed up, like if you went to Meyer and you came, and you peeled off the little plastic film from the guacamole that you get in the fridge, I mean, this was just not going to work. And it was an unspoken rule. Nobody told you. You just had to know that you couldn't be showing up with that kind of guacamole. Now, at Detroit Church, we're not, I mean, guacamole, uh, there's other foods. You know, just ask some people. There's other foods. You just can't show up with any type of, uh, you know, this kind of food. And so when we gather, you know, it's not about the food, but it's, it's not not about the food. So what's the deal here with Peter, right? <laughs> Is this a food issue? Is this an eating issue? Is this a table fellowship issue? Or is it a gospel issue? That's kind of a trick question. Because really, it's both. It's both. The reality is, and why I bring this up, is that the gospel informs every sphere of life. Right? Whether we like it or not. There's a quote from Tim Keller, uh, pastors out in, in New York City. And he says this. He says, the Christian life is a process of renewing every dimension of our lives, spiritual, psychological, corporate, social, 
by living out the ramifications of the gospel. And he goes on to say and talk about the main problem that we deal with as believers. And he says, it's because we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap that the gospel is what you believe when you get saved. Right? Then, then after that, you sort of just kind of move on to other things. So if we're not careful, what we can do is end up sort of compartmentalizing or creating this bifurcation between the spiritual things, right? This is my inner life, my own spiritual growth, you know, our corporate worship as things that the gospel informs. And then other areas just, just kind of remain untouched. The gospel, remember this is the message of God acting in the world through Jesus of Nazareth to redeem humanity, establish his kingdom, and restore creation. It's the gospel. It has the power, actually. It has the resources embedded within it to transform all areas of our lives, our business practices, how we handle our finances, how we think about economic equity, how we think about ourselves as as sexual beings, how we think about race and culture, the social needs in our community, how we engage in humor, our relationships with people like us, our relationships with people not like us. I could go on and on. This table fellowship issue in Antioch is a gospel issue. And things are not right, and Paul is not having it. Peter the guy who like opened the door <laughs> to the Gentiles to receive the gospel is now separating from table fellowship with them. Now, it, it's not over. Um, unfortunately, it gets worse. Let's look at verse 13. It says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So it's not just Peter, right? Peter's a pillar He's a leader. He's an example. So, so the Jews, the Jewish Christians begin to follow him. The other Jewish Christians start leaving the tables too. They get their tray and walk away as well. And they sit separately. That word hypocrisy shows up twice. It's when someone's behavior fundamentally contradicts what they claim to believe. Word to the wise. Especially uh, to those of us in leadership roles in this room, and I'm talking to myself here, myself included. People are watching you. There's a reason that scripture has heavy and sobering words for teachers and leaders and ministers. The reality is like, you're not your own. You don't just occur on an island. You don't just like live your life where no one sees it. What you do, who you eat with, how you conduct yourselves, even the seemingly small decisions, y'all, one of my friends calls it these kind of micro-compromises you make. They don't just affect you. We have to stay accountable that our lives are consistent with our beliefs, right? I'm speaking to myself here. And there's, there's plenty of leaders out there with good, uh, what we would call orthodoxy, right? Which means right belief. Plenty of people that, that, that could articulate uh, the, the truth of, of the scriptures, Right? But many of those same leaders lack what we call orthopraxy, right practice. They've got right belief, but right practice is not there. This was Peter. He knew better. He knew better. But he's not acting in line with the gospel. And then here's the kicker. 
especially for Paul, who's writing this letter, says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas, my guy, (laughs) Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is a low point for Paul. This is his, like, friend, like, die-hard friend, ministry partner, his trusted confidant, his traveling companion. He'd accompanied Paul to taking the, the gospel to the Gentiles, Barnabas, he's also called the encourager. Surely Barnabas of all people wouldn't get up from the table and go along with this foolishness. But we see that is exactly what's happening. Verse 14, Peter, uh, Paul writes, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, And not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now it says, before them all. Paul is speaking to Cephas before them all. Just in case we thought that this was another private meeting, kind of a polite sort of confrontation. No, this is going down in front of everybody right now. I'd say this was a significant moment uh, in the life of the early church. Paul calling out one of the key leaders in the church at this time. This is Peter, who Paul and him had spent, it says, 15 days together, the last time that Paul was in Jerusalem. They'd spent some time together. They had just had this private meeting about, you know, shaking hands on about who was going to go to the Gentiles and the Jews, and they'd take the gospel. But I think we can draw the conclusion from what plays out later uh, with Peter that Peter received Paul's rebuke here. Can you imagine if Paul hadn't stood up to Peter here? Where, where would the church have headed at that point? Of course, God is, God is sovereign. He works all things. But where would, where would Peter have ended up? Right? I mean, if I had time, I wish I, I had time, I, I would ha- have us look through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and we'd read the letters that Peter ends up writing some 10 or 15 years later, and they're powerful, and they're encouraging. And I'm just wondering, like, was this particular encounter in his mind when he wrote that? Like, was, was this encounter when, when Paul called him out and kind of set him straight, was that a critical moment for Peter? And I, I believe it probably was. Now, if you want to dig into First and Second Peter with us, just come to Bible study Wednesday night. We're going to get there. Uh, just a little plug for Bible study. Um, but you can go home and read it. Go home and read it, First, first and Second Peter, uh, and read through that and just see how, how just Peter continues to be formed um, in, in his ministry. This moment was crucial. Yeah, we need people in our lives like this. We need people in our lives who are willing to say the hard thing. This is, what we, this is why we need community. I would call it gospel community is what we need. People around us that can, that can call us back to realigning ourselves with the truth of the gospel, right? Our text today shows us that even the best of us are susceptible to falling away. Even the best of us can get out of step with the truth of the gospel. We can have our beliefs right, but we can step out of, of walking that out. And so I want to encourage you, I plead with you, to take an inventory of your life today, of your relationships, right? If, if you don't have people who can get like Paul and oppose you to your face when you're just a little bit off, uh, you need to take some proactive steps, I would submit. 
talk to someone even before you leave today. Connect with someone here. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to have some time where, where you can seek prayer. There will be people on the sides that you can pray with you. Reach out to someone. Make sure you have that in your life. Now, I want to hone in on this one phrase as I kind of get ready to close. It says what Paul uh, says in verse 14. He says, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, this idea of, of in step, this idea of being in step, this is uh, the idea of being kind of straightforward, as in walking in a consistent straight line, not diverting to the right or to the left, not straying off the path, not wobbling, but, but staying in step. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a group of people dancing and someone gets out of step? I've been that person. <laughs> You know, some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm that person. You know, some of us are more rhythmically inclined than others. That's okay, right? But let me tell you, a few weeks ago, uh, I was with Krista. We were at the African World Fest. Anybody go out to the African World Fest a few weeks ago? Okay, shout out. So <laughs> we were there, and um, we're, we're walking, and we're talking. All of a sudden, I turn, and Krista's gone. I'm like, what? And I, I look over, and I see her, and she's, there's like a whole group of people dancing, and she's, she's dancing. And it's awesome. And I don't think she knew a single person who was dancing, but they were having a great time. And let me tell you, like, they were in step. Like, everyone was in sync. And it, it was just, she had a blast. And we got to talking about it later. And Krista and her cousin, even yesterday, we were talking about, like, the Detroit hustle, right? These different styles of hustle, like ballroom hustle and, and, and different things. Like, this, this way of a song comes on and someone says, oh, I know a hustle to this. And they start going and then other people join in. And it's this amazing thing, right? It's, this, it's these, like, calculated steps that people have memorized and passed down. And then it becomes this kind of universal corporate expression, I know in my extended family growing up, my aunt and uncle used to, used to two-step, like country western style. And they two-step around the kitchen, you know, like they just have a great time. And so, you know, different cultures have different group dances or line dances. But the thing is, you've, you've got to learn the steps, right? But then you have to stay in step. Because if you get out there and you don't know what you're doing or you forget, you're going to throw the whole thing off. Some of y'all think about getting your groove on right about now, Right? Hey, you never know when the opportunity might, might present itself, so, you know, just be ready. But the, the point is, when you hear and believe the truth of the gospel, your life changes. The, the rhythm of your steps change, right? You're brought into new ways of being in the world. But that step is not just for the beginning of your life, you know, your life in following Jesus. It's for all of it. It steps for all of it. Right? We need the gospel as much today as we needed it when we started this thing. And we'll need the gospel in 20 years as much as we need it right now. As uh, one theologian, Amos Young, says, he says, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And that's the sobering truth with Peter, is that he knows the song. He knows the steps. He knows the truth of the gospel. He is very familiar with it but he's not stepping with the gospel. And he knows better, but he's out of step. He's out of step. And Paul says, you're not even living like a Jew, Peter. Yet you're essentially telling the Gentiles, by the way that you're acting, that they have to live like Jews in order to belong to God's family. The different gospel that Peter was, was 
fitting essentially said, that he was buying into, said you need to first obey the law, get circumcised, then you'll be accepted by God and by community. Peter, don't you remember when you were in Cornelius' house that day? Before you could even finish your sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all those Gentiles? They didn't get circumcised in that moment or become Jewish. God met them right there with no barriers. Now let me be, let me be clear uh, to say that, that there's nothing wrong with, with identifying um, with, with our cultures, right? There's nothing wrong with being circumcised or um, eating kosher, observing Torah. Like Jews and Messianic Jews do this today. And, and there's, there's something beautiful to that. There's, there's nothing wrong with us identifying with our backgrounds and our cultures and the soil that we come from. In fact, those things are to be celebrated, right? God, God makes us into one new family, but it's not one new family that all looks the same, right? We come to the table, this, this one table, in all of our beautiful, glorious, diverse particularity. I love the image in, in Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I think we have it on the screen. It says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Don't you love that image? Notice, it's every nation, it's every skin tone, it's every tribe, it's every language. There's all these languages, but they're also all wearing white, and they're all singing the same song. So it's this beautiful union, it's this one new family of God, but it's all of them in their particularity, and in their, in their culture, and in their languages. This is what God is after. But what is fundamentally not okay, and why Paul is so upset here, is when these identity markers, in this case it was circumcision and these sorts of things, when those get misapplied and translated into a gospel that says, you must do these things in order to belong. You can't be a Gentile anymore to be in Christ. You must obey and then you'll be accepted by God and by us. Paul says, no, he says it's re precisely the reverse. The gospel's not that you have to obey and then you'll be accepted. The gospel is that you are accepted, so then you obey. Right? And I'm talking about obedience that flows from acceptance, not the other way around. When I say obedience, I'm talking about the, from the teachings of Scripture, right? The way of Jesus. If you want a place to start, take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Take a look at that. What God has called clean, let no one call common. The band can go ahead and come um, as, as I close, right? Just as we think about this, I think it could be easy for us to become really like Team Paul here, you know? Yeah, just jump down Peter's throat. Look at how he, look what he's doing, discriminating and, and, and imposing a false standard on the Gentiles. We've got to be careful because we've got we've to check ourselves too. It's my question for us today. Are we in step with the gospel in our context today? Are our patterns of living, are our going about our day and our lives, are they in line with the truth of the gospel? 
I'm talking about like the whole of our lives, right? Because maybe for you, you've, you've let God in on certain parts, right? You, the, you, come to, you come to church on Sundays, you, you pray, you go through certain uh, patterns. But maybe when it comes to, let's say, your, your bank account or, or your marriage or the way you show up at work, maybe you haven't synced up those parts of your life with the gospel. Now we're going to take a, a moment here in just a minute to have just a, a little space of, of reflection. And I want to encourage you when we get to that moment uh, to, to take some time to pray, to take some time to analyze your life, to see where you might be out of step. Now I've said this word gospel probably about 50 times in my sermon today. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't even know what the word gospel means. Some of us have heard this word so many times in church and when we don't even actually know, like we, we maybe can't really articulate exactly what the gospel is. But I want to tell you today, when we say gospel, this is the message, you usually hear it called the good news, that God draws near to humanity, that God draws near to us and he takes the parts of us that are broken and fractured and hurting we could even say unclean, right? Because I probably don't have to convince anyone in this room that every human being and society throughout human civilization has participated in and been affected by the impacts of what I call a disease and what scripture refers to as sin. But God, he, he takes all of that, that brokenness, and he makes us whole. He makes us clean. And it's not by anything that you or I could ever do, right? This is Paul's issue. He's like, it's not by circumcision. It's not by certain laws or rules. Maybe we don't really connect with the circumcision idea in our culture, but, but let me say it a different way. It's not by cleaning up our own act. It's not by putting ourselves together. It's not by, you know, doing rigorous spiritual disciplines, but it's by the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a real person mysteriously, fully God and fully man who lived in right relationship with all people and all creatures who died on a cross, resurrected three days later and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it's by what he did, not by what we do, that he sutures back together our relationship to God and to each other. And the gospel doesn't just save us like on our own little islands. It brings us in to one new family of God, Jew and Gentile, male and female, black and white and brown, traditional and non-traditional, suburban and urban, vegan and carnivore, Republican and Democrat, young and old, poor and rich. The gospel brings you and it brings me to the table of the family of God. Let me be clear, there's only one table can't get up and go to the other one. There's only one table. And we get to pull up a chair. Not because we earned our seat at the table, but because God, by his grace, accepts us through his son, Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Amen. So we have an opportunity uh, right now, in just a moment, to, to sort of metaphorically speaking, come to the table. This is a, a practice 
uh, that we have done as Christians from the beginning of all of this. And, and, and in just a moment, uh, Sonny, Pastor Sonny is going to come and lead us in communion. But before we do that, we'll, we'll take the bread and the cup together. But before we do that, I want to take just about a minute, 60 seconds, maybe two minutes, to give you a moment just at your seat to reflect. Take a moment to, to pray. Maybe you prayed this morning. Maybe you haven't prayed in like two years. This is a moment, two minutes out of your whole day to just be with God. Ask to see if, if God wants to speak anything, maybe show any place in your life that you need to get in step with the gospel. Maybe you need to kneel at your chair. We're going to have uh, members of our prayer team along the sides where the arches are. So if you want someone to pray with you, that would be a time where you can get up and seek prayer. But I just want to invite you um, to be open to what the Spirit might want to speak to you today. Maybe today is like the first time you've ever really heard the gospel articulated. If that's you, I encourage you to go seek, uh, seek prayer. Go ask someone to pray with you. Because as Christians, we believe in the power of professing belief in the gospel. So if that's you today, uh, you, can, you can go seek prayer. Maybe you just need to get back in step. Maybe you've been walking it, you know, this out for many years. Uh, but there's an invitation today. So I'm going to pray and then we'll go right into that sort of reflective moment for a few minutes. And then Pastor Sonny will come and lead us in communion. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the good news of salvation for all people. Thank you that you've made a space for us at the table. Not by how good we can walk things out or something like that. God, but by your son. And God, I just pray as, as we take this time to, to be quiet and quiet ourselves before you, that you would speak to our hearts, God. Show us the places in our life that perhaps we've gotten out of step, we've gotten out of sync, that we're, the places in our lives that are maybe not in line with the truth of the gospel. We thank you for your grace that meets, meets us in these places, your grace to get up and walk out of here today back in step by your grace. We thank you and pray you speak to us even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.